Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is Day 11. Today we'll be reading Book 4, Chapters 1 through 4 in the Ascension edition of the book. We wanted to take this opportunity to thank everyone who has helped support this podcast financially. Your support is so appreciated and helps us to reach as many people as possible. If you haven't already, please consider supporting us at ascensionpress.com support. Boom. Okay, before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we're covering today. So you'll hear a couple of interesting things. First, St. Augustine will express his interest in astrology. Mind you, this is not astronomy. Uh, this is astrology, and he'll describe also a passing interest in soothsaying and the sacrificing of animals so as to determine future events and things like that. Basically, this all falls under the heading of of superstition, which isn't just like having a rabbit's foot or, you know, like not touching cracks on the sidewalk as you walk along. This is actually a sin against religion. So it's something that keeps him from true faith, and he understands it in those terms. So it's not like he's overreacting or being melodramatic. He's understanding the things that kept him from true faith for some time. A couple of other like words that you'll come across you might not be familiar with, things that would be good to have looked up for you ahead of time. So you'll hear mention of Hippocrates, who was a Greek physician of the classical period. You've probably heard of the Hippocratic Oath, which doctors will take you know, in anticipation of their practice so as to not do harm and to help their patients. And then you'll also hear the word agonistic, which is a cool word. I would encourage you to use that at every opportunity. It means combative or polemical. So he's talking about the competition of the rhetorical arts. And then the end of the episode is going to lead into his long description of the loss of a friend, which will occupy us in this episode and in the next episode, and even a little bit in the following one. So let's go ahead and get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 1. Thus, for this space of nine years, from my nineteenth to twenty-eighth year, we lived as men seduced and seducing others, deceived and deceiving, in various lusts, openly doing so through the so-called liberal arts and secretly under the false name of religion, here, proud, there, superstitious, yet everywhere vain. Here we hunted after meaningless popular praise, even to the point of desiring theatrical applauses, seeking also poetic prizes, mastery that would give green garlands, the follies of shows, and an intemperate life of desires. And there, in the Manichaean rites, desiring to be cleansed from these defilements, we carried food to the so-called elect and holy, so that from this fare they might, in the workshop of their stomachs, forge for us angels and gods, by which we might be cleansed. These were the practices that I followed with my friends who were deceived by me and along with me. Let the arrogant mock me, as well as those who have not been, to their soul's health, stricken and cast down by you, O my God. However, I would still confess to you my shame and praise of you. 
Allow me to recall these things, I beseech you, Lord, and give me the grace to turn over in my present remembrance the wanderings of these days of my past and offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. See Psalm 5014. For without you, what am I for myself but a guide to my own downfall? Or, even at my best, what am I but an infant suckling upon the milk that you give, feeding upon you the incorruptible food? See John 6, 27. But what kind of man is any man, seeing that he is but a man? Let the strong and mighty now laugh at us, but let us, the poor and needy, see Psalm 74, 21, confess unto you. 2. During those years I taught rhetoric, and overcome by carnal desires, I sought a kind of verbosity that would allow men to win arguments. But I preferred, O Lord you know, honest scholars, as they are accounted, and, while myself not engaging in deceptive artifices in my own teaching, taught them the artifices that were to be practiced, not against the life of the guiltless, though they might sometimes be used to save the life of the guilty. And you, O God, perceived me stumbling upon the slippery slope, and amidst so much smoke, you sent forth sparks of fidelity which I showed while guiding men who loved vanity and sought out lies. See Psalm 4.2. During those years I loved a woman, not in lawful marriage, but through wayward passion devoid of understanding. But I had only one such lover, remaining sexually faithful to her. With her I learned the difference that separates the self-restraint of the marriage covenant for the sake of begetting children from a mutual agreement out of lustful love, where children are born against their parents' will, though once born, they force their parents to love them. I also recall that when I had decided to take part in a competition for the sake of a theatrical prize, some soothsayer asked me what I would give him to win. However, because I detested and abhorred such foul mysteries, I answered, quote, even if the garland were made of imperishable gold, I would not allow a fly to be killed in order for me to win a prize, End quote. I said this because he offered to kill several living creatures in sacrifice and by offering these gifts to invite devils to favor my cause. But I also rejected this evil, though not out of a pure love for you, O God of my heart, for I did not know how to love you, confined as my thought was to imaginings of a physical kind of brightness. And does not a soul, pining after such fictions, commit fornication against you, put its trust in unrealities, and feed the wind? See Hosea 12.1. Still, in truth, I would not have sacrifices offered to devils for me, though I was sacrificing myself to them through the superstition that I followed. For what else does it mean to feed the wind than to feed such devils, namely by going astray and thereby becoming objects of their pleasure and derision? 3. Thus, I consulted these impostors who are called astrologers. I felt no scruple at doing so, for they seemed to use no sacrifice nor to pray to any spirit for their divinations, though Christian and true piety consistently rejects and condemns the practices of their art. For it is a good thing to confess unto you and to say, quote, Have mercy on me, heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. End quote. See Psalm 41.4. Nor should we abuse your mercy as though it gave permission to sin, but rather we should recall the Lord's words, quote, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse befall you. End quote. John 5.14 But they strive to destroy all such wholesome advice, saying, quote, The cause of your sin is inexorably determined in the heavens. End quote. End quote. This was done by Venus, or Saturn, or Mars. End quote. Also that man, who is fashioned of flesh and blood and proud corruption, might be held blameless while the creator and order of heaven and the stars is made to bear the blame. And who is he other than our God, the very sweetness and wellspring of righteousness, he who renders to every man according to his deeds, see Romans 2.6, Matthew 16.27, and who does not despise a broken and contrite heart, see Psalm 51.17. 
Now, in those days, there was a wise man who was very skilled and renowned in the art of medicine, who with his own hand as proconsul had placed the agonistic garland upon my unhealthy brow, though not as a physician, for only you cure the disease from which I suffered. You who resist the proud and give grace to the humble. See 1 Peter 5, 5. But did you fail me even through that old man or refrain from healing my soul? Indeed, as I became more acquainted with him, assiduously fixed to his words, which, although simple in terms, were vivid, lively, and earnest, he saw through my discourse that I was given to the books of the astrologers and their birth tables. Thus, he gave me the kind and fatherly advice to cast them away and not to fruitlessly give such trifling things the kind of care and diligence that are so necessary for useful affairs. He told me how in his own youth he had studied that art, hoping to make a living through such a profession, which would not have been a difficult affair for someone who was able to understand Hippocrates. Yet, he abandoned himself over to medicine, giving himself over to it for no other reason than that he found such astrology to be utterly false. Therefore, he, a serious man, refused to make a living by deluding people through the practice of it. But you, he said to me, can make a living off rhetoric. Therefore, you are following this of free choice, not necessity. You should therefore listen to me all the more, given that I had labored to acquire it so perfectly in order to earn my living by it alone. I then asked him how this art managed to foretell so many things, to which he answered, as well as he could, quote, The force of chance, which spreads all throughout the whole order of things, brings this about. Indeed, if a man can randomly open the pages of some poet and find something marvelously agreeable for his own life at that time, even though a poet was singing and thinking of something quite different, we should not be surprised if man's soul, from some unknown place and moved by some higher instinct, should bring forth, by chance and not art, an answer that corresponds to the business and actions of an inquirer. End quote. Thus indeed, either from or through him, you conveyed this message to me, and thus traced into my memory something that I might thereafter examine for myself. However, at the time, neither he nor my dearest Nebridius, a youth having a uniquely good character and filled with holy fear, who also mocked the whole art of divination, could persuade me to cast it aside. For I was swayed more by the authority of these authors, and to this point found no certain proof, to the degree that I sought one, that would show me with certitude that what was foretold by those whom I consulted was caused by chance and not the art of the stargazers. 4. During those years, when I first began to teach rhetoric in my own native town, I had made a friend who was my own age, indeed, like myself in the early bloom of youth, with whom I shared a number of pursuits, though I loved him too dearly. He had grown up with me as a child, and we had been fellows both in school and play. However, we were not friends at the time. Indeed, we were not friends during this later period either, at least according to the true meaning of friendship, for no friendship can be true unless you are the one who binds it together by making such friends cleave to you through that, quote, love that has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, end quote. Romans 5, 5. But it was too sweet, ripened by the warmth of kindred studies, for I warped him from the true faith, which in fact he had not soundly and thoroughly imbibed in his youth, turning him to the superstitious and pernicious fables that were the cause of my own mother's lamentations. With me now he erred in mind, and my soul could not be without him. But behold, you were fast upon the heels of those who flee from you, at once the God of vengeance, see Psalm 94, 1, and the fountain of mercies, turning us to you through marvelous means. You took him from this life scarcely one year after our friendship had begun, a friendship that I experienced as something sweeter than everything else in my life at that time. Who can recount all your praises? See Psalm 106.2. Indeed, how could one man even recount those he has experienced in himself alone? 
What did you do then, my God, and how unsearchable is the abyss of your judgment? See Psalm 36, 6 and Romans eleven thirty three. 4. Sick with a fever, he long lay unconscious, drenched in sweat and dying. Because it was judged that he would not recover, he was baptized unknowingly. I thought little of this, presuming that his soul would instead retain whatever it had received from me, not what was done to his unconscious body. But matters proved different, for he was restored and returned to health. And immediately, as soon as I could speak with him, which was very soon thereafter, for I was ever at his side, and we were always too much in each other's company, I, thinking that he would share with me in my ridicule, attempted to joke with him about the baptism he had received while completely unconscious and unfeeling, only now understanding that he had received it. However, he drew back from me vigorously, as though from an enemy, and with an amazing and sudden freedom he made clear to me that if I wished to remain his friend, I must abstain from such words. Amazed and astonished, I suppressed all my feelings, waiting until he should recuperate and recover his health sufficiently for me to then deal with him as I wished. However, he was delivered from my follies so that he might be preserved with you for my comfort. For a few days thereafter, while I was absent, he suffered another attack of fever and died. Stricken by this grief, my heart was utterly darkened, and all that I beheld was death to me. My native land was a torment, and my father's house a strange source of unhappiness. And desiring to be together with him, whatever I had shared with him became a distracting torture. My eyes sought after him everywhere, but they were not granted his face. And I hated all places, for he could not be found in any of them, nor could they inform me he is coming, as when he was alive and absent. I became a great riddle to myself and asked my soul, Why are you cast down and why are you disquieted within me? See Psalm 42, 5. But my soul had no answer for me. And if I said, Hope in God, she quite rightly did not obey me. For that most dear friend whom she had lost was both truer and better than the false image that I bade her to trust in. Only tears were sweet to me, for they followed my friend and the dearest of my affection. So, in the Confessions, there are a handful of themes which come up often, or a handful of things that St. Augustine mentions with frequency. One is vanity. So we've heard the word vanity. We typically think about it as like somebody standing in front of a mirror and primping. Truth be told, at the heart of that word there is just the word for emptiness. So it's a kind of empty show, the types of things that you do, but not for substantial reasons, but for insubstantial reasons. And so we'll talk about his studies and his profession kind of under that rubric that I was motivated by vain things, whether promotion or recognition or whatever else. And then here he'll also talk about superstition. Um, so at this point, he is a manichae, which we've described a little bit uh, at this stage, and that's going to lead him to astrology. So, you know, he's trying to make sense basically of his life, and he's, he's identifying these different tendencies which keep him from honesty and sincerity, which will ultimately lead him to the profession of the true faith. So, uh, Father Jacob Bertrand, in St. Augustine's description of his own life, we see, yeah, at this stage of the game, having converted, we see that honesty, we see that sincerity. How does that help us appreciate what's going on in his life at this stage? Yeah, I think when, when we talk about sin or brokenness or sort of like the wayward paths that we, that we take sometimes, we can, we can fall into extremes in those descriptions. Um, you know, I think here of a sort of the worst sort of like um, what faith testimonies or or like testimonials where like my life was great. And then like everything I hit rock bottom and it was all wrong and I was doing everything wrong. And then I met Jesus and everything was great again. And like, that's not really how life works. There are ups and downs, but I don't think it's as exaggerated. And in a way we see this in St. Augustine's 
kind of journey as well, where, yeah, he's not a Christian, and sometimes he's far from the life of a Christian and right now as as we're reading. But we we should see in in what he's doing, and certainly not in the vanity, but with respect to his practice of Manichaeism, the sort of soothsaying, the astrology, all of this is, I'm not saying any of that's good, but what I am saying is that we can see tinges of or or pieces of his desire for the truth to know what is good and there's a search here and again it's not that what he's doing i'm not condoning these things nor am i condoning them in my life or others but we see here and saint augustine himself writes about this that even despite his looking in the wrong places he's looking you know his heart is restless um, he's looking for the lord and and through these things our lord uses them to to eventually draw him to himself so the other th- quick thing that i'll say too is that often perhaps a more common way i mean we're I, vanity certainly alive and well in our present day and age but i think we we look at what we do more in terms of pride and of of that sort of thing but they go hand in hand so pride vanity kind of doing things to be seen to be thought of better it rules not just St. Augustine, but us too. I think there's, we've talked about the relatability of St. Augustine and, and the way grace works, but I think there's also a relatability in, in the brokenness and in, in the weakness that we see here too that we're reading about. Yeah, and it's it's fascinating because on the one hand, we're reading St. Augustine writing in the 390s about his life of you know a decade, a decade and a half before. And so he's able to reflect upon it with the clarity of his current life of grace and virtue and gifts of the Holy Spirit. So the Lord is at work in his life, illuminating, and then motivating a deeper conversion. And with that, he's able to revisit the past and then get at the heart of what is really at stake. And so we we describe that when it comes to the mystery of iniquity, that when you're talking about like an inky black whatever poison that congregates at you know the center of the person you're not going to you know you're not going to achieve much success in what determining what's really going on there because because there's nothing to it you know like it's something that ought to be there that isn't there and so you're going to have great difficulty kind of summing it up or you know bringing it to light and now that he has converted that he has advanced in his spiritual journey he has something of a capacity to identify his motivations and um he you know he's somewhat severe in his judgments of himself but I think part of that abasement, you know, part of his humiliation in this admission is like, it's the paradoxical logic of the gospel whereby he is then exalted. That's also featuring in. You think about the Song of Hannah or the Magnificat of Our Lady or the Philippians hymn, you know, Philippians 2 verses 6 through 11. Our Lord charts a path for us in emptying of himself and in so emptying himself, coming to be glorified. And St. Augustine wants to be conformed to our Lord Jesus Christ in both his self-emptying and in his glorification. And so he's found a real glory now, a substantial glory, a thick glory, and he wants to lay hold of that by the only means that God makes it available, which is in emptying of himself, which is in humbling himself before those whom he knows, you know, he knows he's offended or he knows He's kind of brought shame on, even if by association. So yeah, it's very it's very beautiful and it's very encouraging in our own lives of faith because we often think that any admission of weakness or any admission of woundedness in the presence of our friends or enemies could only conduce to our undoing, but it ends up that that provides a kind of source of freedom. Now, we're not necessarily encouraging like an over-manifestation or over-sharing, but still, it's, it's when we claim to be weak, it's then that we are most strong. So yeah, Father Jacob Bertrand, any thoughts on on the application that we have of this type of teaching in our own lives? Yeah, we can, well, we can start by looking at St. Augustine's life, this sort of grasping for a fullness that it doesn't 
fulfill, right? That he 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 turns in his practice of Manichaeism to their sort of superstition, to their rites, to their practices, their customs, to, and as we read, leads him to sort of practice or reliance on astrology. Like all of these things are are we can even say vain attempts at what fulfillment at knowledge at the spiritual life and um, he talks too about the practice of sophistry of just arguing for the sake of arguing um, doesn't matter the truth doesn't matter what's being argued he talked about this earlier in book one too when when he would listen to his teachers argue who would be criticized if you remember that the harsh criticisms and the punishments at school would come not from talking or arguing or using one's own like debauchery in their argument of telling stories of one's debauchery but of like pronouncing words wrong like then you would be punished you wouldn't be punished for moral failings but for like mispronunciation of words so all of this is kind of a hunt for fulfillment but is unfulfilling it's vain it's empty and as father gregory was talking about in a saint augustine witness and, and and bears testimony to it's that there has to be a leaving of these things behind an emptying here so as to be fulfilled with christ and in these chapters we see too that there's augustine's sort of well the importance of his relationships and the kind of the the emptiness and especially now as he's writing the reflection on how his relationships with his son with his friend you know how all of these kind of shaped and formed but they too were unfulfilling at least in the way saint augustine was going about the pursuit of them so i don't know if there are thoughts there that pop into your mind but worth mentioning yeah, no, I think, I mean, this this particular section is very precious. He, he covers a lot of ground, and he leads us into a theme which will occupy us for the next two episodes. But certainly, you know, like in thinking about vanity and superstition, from his present vantage, he has a new appreciation of the fact that you're not just messing around at this stage, you know? It's not just something that's like, what, interesting and charming. You're actually entertaining, potentially entertaining demons, and as a result of which, he has a new kind of holy fear with respect to these practices. Um, so his spirit is far more sobered and far more chastened uh, before the realities which he knows himself to have escaped, if only by a hair's breadth. But but you also see here like a vague sense of the faith at work or operative in his life. Insofar as, you know, he consults this older, wiser person about astrology and the guy says, you know, it's just vain, it's just empty. And if people get their predictions right, it's only by chance, by luck. And, you know, he's not wholly convinced, but already, you know, there's something there and he shows a kind of reticence to be given entirely unto the practice and, you know, recall the fact that he's a catechumen. So while not yet baptized, while the efficacy of the grace of the sacrament is not yet at work in his life, still he's on a path, even if he's delayed the advance along that path for some time. And when it comes to the efficacy of those sacraments, we lead here into the description of his friend, which is just the final note for this here episode. So, you know, his friend falls sick, uh, and while he falls sick, he's baptized, but then he recovers consciousness. And then in that time, St. Augustine's joking with him about his baptism, but, but the man will have none of it. He just, he won't expose the faith to mockery. So it's clear that something has happened, and then eventually he falls you know, ill again and dies. And so we see here the efficacy of the sacraments already at work in St. Augustine's life and imagination, even if only by proximity or by the testimony of a close friend. So yeah, final thoughts? Yeah, the, the moment with his with his friend, this this back and forth of being baptized, of recovering a bit, it's something that, as Father Gregory mentioned at the top of the episode, we're going to talk about more because St. Augustine dwells on it for a good bit, so the next episode at least. But we should be prepared for that, that that shapes St. Augustine in profound ways, the loss of his friend, the reaction to the loss of his friend, but also his friend's reaction, as it were, to receiving the grace of baptism and dying in that grace. So it's not for nothing that St. Augustine spends a lot of time on it because it's a powerful moment in his life. So we're going to talk more about that in, in coming episodes for sure. 
Excellent. All right. So it's it's to that relationship and to that conversation that we'll turn in earnest in our next episode. So know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us. And we'll catch you next time on Catholic Classics. <laughs>